We're in Joshua chapter 9. We're continuing to look at obedience and kingdom promises. And this morning, we're looking at a group that seek blessing without obedience. I'm going to kind of think through that. We're going to read chapter 9. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. And if you, if you need to sit down, feel free to do so. We're going to read the whole chapter here and read about this, this group, the Gibeonites, and their attempt to deceive and become a part or to remove themselves from God's judgment without full submission to him. Verse 1 of Joshua 9. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, the hill country, and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their own part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn-out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for for, for the journey and Go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they've burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of the provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them, and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon. Shiphara, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us. Because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. 
So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing, and now, behold, we're in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. And so he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. You may be seated. And Father, we would ask uh, your grace as we look at this event from the life of your people, that we would draw your message from it, that we would be uh, those who are, are part of your covenant people and are completely in submission to you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, in his book, The Unsaved Christian, uh, author Dean and Sarah argues that there are those who are people who would call themselves Christians and are, are yet unsaved, hence, hence the title of the book, The Unsaved Christian. In other words, there are those who would say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but really they're what Dean would just call cultural Christians. They're they're part of a a culture that considers itself Christian. They they haven't really believed the gospel message. They're just kind of people who would call themselves Christians without being saved. And he gives several examples of, of cultural Christians. So, for example, he would talk about Country club Christians, these, these cultural Christians are those who kind of view the gospel message as a, a message of, of, of group participation. You know, I'm, I'm part of this church, it's where I, I serve, it's my, my social sphere, these are where my friends are, and, and so of course I'm a Christian because I, this, is, this is where I serve, this is, I'm part of the church, I'm, I'm a Christian, and, and yet maybe they haven't believed the gospel message. Or, another example he, he gives is the the God and country Christian. This, this gospel message says, okay, I, I, I'm an American and I have, I have biblical values and I believe that America was founded upon biblical values and so as I, as I proclaim biblical values in my culture, that's, that's what Christianity is. That's the essence of, the Christ, of Christianity. It's, that's, that's, that's who I am. It's the culture that I'm a part of. Or another example is the liberal a social justice gospel Christian. This person would say, okay, I, I have these, these ethics, this, this desire for justice that comes from Christianity, from the Bible, and so my gospel message is a, a message that proclaims justice, and I, I proclaim justice, and so of, of course I'm a Christian. Or there's the, the Christmas and, and Easter Christian this person's part of a, a culture that, that values the, the traditions of Christianity, and their family has always been Christian, and, and they, they come to church at special times, and they would say the, the gospel message is a message of, of, of family and of, of warm feelings, and I'm a Christian because this is, this is the message I believe. I, I believe in these, these family values and traditions and so forth. 
Now, none of these things are bad. It's not bad to be patriotic. It's not bad to desire justice. It's not bad to, to come to, to church as, as a family. All, all those things are good. But all these, all these examples of cult, cultural Christianity represent people who say, I, I'm, I'm a part of a culture, and, and my, my culture has shaped my understanding of the gospel message as opposed to what the Bible says about the gospel and what the Bible says about how a person comes into relationship with God, how a person becomes a Christian. See, the gospel message in Scripture tells us that we're sinners, that we are not righteous. We don't have the righteousness that God says we must have in order to be in relationship with him. Scripture's gospel message tells us that because of our sin, we are in line of God's wrath. We are in danger of his eternal judgment. And the Bible's gospel message tells us that Jesus Christ came not just to give us a a sentimental feeling. Jesus Christ came, lived the perfect life that you and I could not live, perfect righteousness, died on the cross on our behalf, in our place, bearing God's wrath for us, rose from the dead, and now you and I can have life in him. By placing our trust in him and in him alone. By submitting to him as our Lord and as our Savior. You see what a different message that is than the message of of cultural Christianity here in North America? And the reality is, many of us have accepted a, a cultural understanding of Christianity instead of Scripture's understanding of what it means to be in Christ. And as a result, many churches are, are full of, of cultural Christians, of people who believe just kind of a, a minimal understanding of the, the gospel message and, and are kind of content with, with living in their, their cultural bubble of what it means to be a Christian and are not, not willing or, or don't understand the need to be committed to the, the life that God has called them to live. Instead, they're, they're content to live as kind of mediocre Christians. What's kind of the, the bare minimum I need to do in order to be a part of this, this Christian culture? Now, now brothers and sisters, I, I'm convinced that by God's grace, you desire more. Than, than mediocre cultural Christianity. I'm convinced that, that by God's grace this morning, you would say, no, I, I desire to be fully in Christ. I, I don't want to be at the periphery of God's people and kind of a, a cultural Christian. I, I desire to be in Christ and obedient to him and fully committed to living the life that God has called me to live. And I believe that if, if you can be at, at Bethany Community Church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and not be uncomfortable with cultural Christianity, then either I've, I've failed you or you've been asleep, which may be my fault also. I'm not sure, but, you know. In other words, you should not be content. You, you, there's no way in which, you, if you are able to come here and listen to God's word proclaimed week after week and be comfortable with cultural, cultural Christianity, I have failed you in a, in a tragic way, and I'm convinced that that's not your desire this morning. By God's grace, 
If you are in Christ, you don't want cultural Christianity. You want full submission to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, in this text this morning, we find what, what, I, what I find, at least, a very difficult story. We encounter a group of people who are content with doing just enough to avoid God's immediate judgment. We encounter a group of people called the, the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites are content to, to live at the periphery of God's people, at the edge of God's people, and they find themselves at war with God, and they, they try to do just enough to not be immediately destroyed by him. And they're not intent on truly seeking peace with him, just avoiding the worst consequences of their sin. And, and here's kind of the big idea that I want you to, to think about with me this morning. The big idea is this. What we're going to see is that peace with God, true biblical peace with God, cannot take place without true submission to God. The war with God that you and I are in by, by birth, by being sinners, the war that we're in with God doesn't end by some sort of negotiated ceasefire. The only way that war with God ends is, is through complete unconditional surrender. And we're going to look at the Gibeonites, and there's kind of two things that we're going to see in the story of the Gibeonites that I think point us to the reality that they aren't truly submissive to God, and the war with God and the Gibeonites isn't completely over yet. And, and these two truths hopefully will help us as we think about our submission to God. Here's the first truth that I want us to consider as we look at verses 1 through 15. If you manipulate God's people... You may achieve your goals, but it's going to be at the cost of pursuing God's goals. So you ask yourself the question, am I truly in submission to God? And a person who is trying to manipulate God and his people is a person who's not truly in submission to God. And in reality, we're going to find if, if I'm a person who's trying to manipulate, manipulate God and his people, I, I'm, I may achieve the goals that I have for myself, but it's going to be at the cost of pursuing God's goals. Let's look at the text with me, if you would, and, and see how this, this works out. Now, we begin in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, and we, we read that there are some, some groups that, that come together, some kings, and he mentions these, these six groups, and they're these groups are mentioned in various ways throughout the Old Testament during this time period. We see them mentioned in different kind of connections and orders. We saw seven groups, some of the same groups mentioned in chapter 3. And here in chapter 9, these, these six uh, kind of six ethnicities, cultural groups are, are said to be gathering together. Now, in chapter 5, remember, this, the same thing happened. There were some, some kings, some, some people who heard about what God had done. And in chapter 5, remember what it said. It said that when they heard these things, their hearts, their hearts melted. Now, as we come to chapter 9, he mentions these kings, people beyond the Jordan, the, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, they hear what's just happened, and their hearts don't melt with fear in the same way, do they? It says that, what do they do? They gather together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Now, what's happened between chapter 5 and chapter 9? Well, Achan's sin, right? 
and the initial defeat by the Israelites at Ai. Achan's sin continues to bear wicked fruit. You just wonder, what would have happened if if Achan hadn't sinned? The, The people come in, they defeat Jericho, they come in, they defeat Ai. How might the kings have responded differently? But now these kings are, are emboldened. They recognize perhaps there's, there's a weak link here. Perhaps there's a way to defeat these Israelites. And if we gather together, maybe we can, can conquer them. Maybe we can thwart off this, this encroachment upon our, our kingdoms. Joshua and the people have come in kind of at the the central area of the promised land, and in chapter 10, they're going to begin their southern campaign, and they're going to go into the north. But but here in chapter 9, beginning in verse 3, the the biblical author, the narrator here, draws our attention to this subgroup. This is a subgroup of the, the Hivites, a group called the Gibeonites. And as we look at verse 3, the Gibeonites somehow, and we're not exactly sure how, the Gibeonites have also heard some things about the Israelites. As we go through the chapter, we recognize that the Gibeonites know that God has commanded the Israelites to completely conquer all the people who live in these cities and in, the, in this territory. They, they know that they've been called to, to drive out the inhabitants from this land, and they also somehow know that the Israelites are not to make a covenant with the people who live in this land. And so the Gibeonites are, are fearful for their lives. They're fearful for the, the loss of their culture. They, they recognize that God has declared that there is no longer any place in Canaan for their culture, for their people to exist, and they face this crisis. Now, I, I want you to place yourself in the, the Gibeonites' sandals. What would you do? Let's say that you hear that there's a a people that that God has told to to come into central Illinois. He's heard about the the wickedness of central Illinois, and he wants to wipe out the culture of of central Illinois. What would you do? Some of you are thinking, yeah, wipe them out. I mean, what what would you do? what's, What's your response? Well, here's what the Gibeonites do. Look at, look at the text. It says they on their own part, so, the other, so kind of the, the larger group we see in verses 1 and 2 are, are going to fight against Joshua and Israel. The Gibeonites have a different strategy. It says in verse 4, they acted with cunning. And they make it look like they live a, a long way away. They, they, they take out these worn-out sacks and worn-out wineskins with, with patches on them and patches on their sandal and worn-out clothes. And they take these, these dry and crumbly provisions, food, and they go to Joshua and the leaders and they, they tell them, we, we've traveled from a long way, and, and now we want to make a covenant with you. And the people say, well, how do we, how do we know that you've come from a long way away? And, and Joshua says, who are you? Where do you come from? They say, no, no, we're from a, a distant country. They recognize that Joshua and the people are not allowed to make covenants with people who live in the land. Exodus 34 tells them not to do that. And so they say, no, we're from a long way away. We've heard a report. It says, verse 9, we heard a report about Yahweh and all that he did in Egypt and what he did to the two kings. And so our elders, verse 11, and all the inhabitants of our country told us to to go and to make this covenant with you. And now now look, here's our bread. It was warm when we left. 
Here are our wines. Look at all this evidence that shows that we've come from a long way away. Why did the Gibeonites do that? They know what Yahweh God has instructed, and their goal is to thwart God's instruction. to remove their culture to destruction. Now the leaders in Joshua respond, they, they make this covenant. In fact, as you look at the, the text, it, it, there's several things that, that, that describe the binding nature of this covenant. They made peace with them, verse 15. They made a covenant with them, verse 15. They, they swore to them, verse 15. And, and verse 14 is very ominous. It says that they, they simply looked at their provisions. In other words, they used their human wisdom to make this decision. And it says they did not consult with the Lord. Now, now some people would say, look, the, the Gibeonites are just like Rahab. Remember Rahab? Rahab says some of the same things that the Gibeonites say, and, and Rahab is brought into the covenant people with, with God, and, and it seems like the, the language is, is somewhat similar. Both of them talk about how what God did in Egypt and what God did to those two kings, and I, I, would, I would disagree. Yes, there are some similarities, but there's what I believe is a very significant difference. What Rahab does is she recognizes the danger that the people are in from from Yahweh God, and she throws herself on on the mercy of Yahweh. There's no deception of of the the people of Israel. There's no attempts to to hide who she is. She ceases being a, a loyal citizen of Jericho. She ceases to become a Canaanite, and she becomes a part of the people of God. Not so with the Gibeonites. And as we go through the text, what I, I believe there are several clues in the text, several just outright statements to tell us this story is not viewed positively the way that the story of Rahab is viewed. They act with cunning and deception, tricking the people of God. The, the, the people don't consult with God before they make this decision. Joshua says that the Gibeonites are, are cursed in other words, the Gibeonites are saying, okay, how can we, instead of, Rahab says, okay, this is God's plan, let me throw myself at Yahweh's mercy. The Gibeonites say, well, how can we thwart that plan? How can we avoid the destruction that Yahweh says is coming? Now, you say, well, well Daniel, you told me to put myself in the Gibeonites' worn out, patched up sandals. So here, here I am. What else could I, I possibly do? I think there are several things that the Gibeonites could, could have possibly done here that would have been the, the right thing to do. If you hear that, that God says your city and the people who are in your city are going to be destroyed because of their wickedness and this culture is going to be wiped off the face of the earth, what should you do? You leave that city. <laughs> you say, God wants to drive out my, my people from the city. I'm going to leave this city. God says, the Gibeonites, the Hivites are, are going to be, be wiped off. I'm no longer going to be a Gibeonite. 
I think that the best thing that the Gibeonites could have done is, is to do what Rahab did and, and throw themselves in complete honesty and truthfulness before Yahweh God in, in repentance. Now, we, we're going to get into this more in the future between this, this section of Scripture, God sovereignly declaring what's going to happen, and that, that sovereignly declaring what's going to happen is based upon how he knows people are going to behave, and, and it kind of turns our, our brains into pretzels as we kind of think about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But what we know in Scripture, what's very clear, and as we come to the story, what we have to keep in mind is God says that he will be merciful to all who come to him in repentance. You think about the people of, of Nineveh, remember in Jonah, Jonah, Jonah comes at God's, at God's uh, command to the people of Nineveh, and he says, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And how do the people of Nineveh respond? It says the people of Nineveh believed God. They, they called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. The king arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and, and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and the nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And there are examples of this throughout Scripture where people simply, as they recognize that they deserve God's punishment, they throw themselves on his mercy and receive as they submit to him as, as Yahweh, as King, as Lord. He becomes their Savior, their Deliverer. And such is the invitation to each of us who submit to him. But, but brothers and sisters, manipulation Manipulation is not a fruit of submission. Trying to manipulate God and his people to preserve your kingdom is not a sign of submission to God and his authority. This is part of what is so dangerous about cultural Christianity. It allows us to exist in this, this bubble in which we call ourselves Christians and yet don't fully submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The Gibeonites say, I want to preserve my kingdom and so I'm, I'm going to manipulate God's people to keep it. And you and I so often are like the Gibeonites. We say, what can I do? What can I do to preserve this kingdom and avoid full submission to Yahweh as king? You say, well, what, what exactly do you mean by manipulation? What, what is manipulation? Here's kind of a, a, a definition that as I try to think about what a biblical understanding of manipulation is. I believe manipulation is an attempt to control other, how others act or think. It's, it's my attempt to control how others act or think that's motivated by my desire to love myself instead of love others. So I, I, want, I, I want others to act in a certain way that exalts me 
And it's, it's the, the, the things I'm trying to do through emotional manipulation, through, through control, through coercion, through, through subtle means, I'm, I'm trying to preserve my kingdom, what I want to happen that will exalt me instead of saying, okay, what's the best way to exalt and love other people? And we do this in a variety of ways, right? The only way that I can manipulate you, the only way that I can get you to operate, to to live your life in such a way that exalts me, the only way I can get you to do that is by distorting your view of reality. You see, reality says God is king. Reality says God is king, and all of us should be living our lives to, to magnify God. Manipulation distorts your view of reality and says, hey, stop thinking about what will exalt God and what the best thing to do to worship God is, and instead, let's think about the best thing to do for Daniel. Manipulation is, is trying to distort other people's view of reality. You can probably tell by my voice, I, I've had a little bit of a, a head cold this week. And uh, I, I've been taking NyQuil at nights, which is, is fun, right? I, it's just a, uh, it's, it's, it's Baptist liquor, right? Uh, and so, I forget that I'm being recorded sometimes. But, um, it, it, it's... it's uh, I, I take this NyQuil before bed, and, and I, before I fall asleep, I like to read a little bit, and I'll lay in bed after having NyQuil, and I'll think, oh, this isn't working. I'm, I'm still wide awake. But then suddenly, I, I enter this, this weird state, I'm, I'm sure maybe you've experienced this, right, where I'm, I'm, reading, I'm reading on my Kindle, uh, Whitney has asked me not to read big, heavy theological books, because I tend to drop them on her when I'm sleeping, because <laughs> I fall asleep, but I'm reading on my Kindle, and all of a sudden, I'm reading this story and there's the words on the page, and then there's my imagination, and suddenly the two start kind of, kind of converging together. And, I'm, and when I wake up the next morning and look at what I've, I've read, I'll realize there are several pages that I do not remember reading. This definitely was not the story I was reading last night or the material I was reading last night. It's, just, it's this altered view of reality that I enter into, right? The, the NyQuil reality. Manipulated realities, I want you to view life differently than how God views reality. I want you to think about me, as, and there are many ways in which we do this. We want to prevent our kingdoms from being attacked. We want, to, we want to not engage in true repentance. We just want to do enough to manipulate others where we can say we're, we're part of God's kingdom, but really we're preserving our own. So for example, many ways that you and I do this. I, let's say that I've, I've, I've yelled at my wife. I've raised my voice at my wife. We're doing bills, and I raise my voice, and she comes to me later, and she says, Daniel, it, it, it really hurt me that you, you lost your temper like that. And instead of acknowledging, yeah, I, I was so wrong, will you please forgive me? I, I manipulate. Honey, I'm very surprised that you would come to me and, and talk about this. I mean, as I look at the bills, you're the one who's spending the money. And I, I'm just very surprised. You, you kind of, the, the way that you spent the money drove me to do that. So I, I'm, I'm really shocked that you're coming to ask me for forgiveness. What is it? That, that's, that's, that's manipulation. Instead of saying, yeah, I was, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? I'm, I'm trying to, to shift the blame and, 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 and draw attention to something that's not really relevant to what I did that's wrong. Or, or let's say that I find out that a, a friend is going to go hang out with some other friends. And I, 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 in my world, I'm, I'm the center. I should be the center of other, every person's existence. And so I say, well, man, I, I, I thought you really cared about me. I, I, I guess you don't. That's, that's, that's okay. I'm forcing 
my friend, to, to think about me instead about what the right thing to do is in caring for other people. Or let's say that I've, I've, I've confessed to doing something wrong and I've, I've, I've told you that, hey, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, try to uh, rectify this, this thing that I've done wrong and, and later you kind of bring it up to me and I say, wow, I, I said I was sorry. I, I'm really surprised that you're, you're bringing this up again after I've already said that I'm sorry or I can't believe you're bringing up stuff from the past. or I'm doing these things to try to try to shift a person's view of reality, not recognizing my need to, to acknowledge my sin. I sulk, I pout, I, I play the victim. I talk to people about how I, I can't believe that they're just like all the other people in my life who I thought were my friends. I'm, I'm, I'm refusing, I'm refusing to view reality as God sees reality and my need for repentance. And brothers and sisters, all of us, to one degree or another, are tempted to engage in manipulation of God's people. Instead of encouraging them to view reality as God views reality and our need to let our own kingdoms be destroyed through manipulation, we try, we try to preserve desperately our own self-respect, our own image. We do it with our children, Right? <laughs> Man, we manipulate our children like crazy, those of us who are parents. We manipulate them to obey when they're little children. We try to manipulate them to to spend time with us when they're teenagers. They go off to college and and we call them because they haven't called us. And we say, how are you doing? Oh yeah, Mom mom and I are doing fine here at home by ourselves. We were just talking about which one of us is gonna Donate an organ next to pay for your college. Um, you know. it's, it's sinful. It's sinful. God calls us to be open and honest and, and to, to be truthful in our communication as, as we die to ourselves. Here, here's just some points of application here, some, some things to think through. Number, number one, you and I need to be, be repentant. We need to be repentant. We need to be truthful. So we need to be repentant. We need to, to truly confess our sins to, to God. Romans 7, 24, Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I, I'm honest about who I am. I'm not trying to, to preserve my kingdom. I need to be truthful. I, I need my communication with others, trusting the results to God. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2 talks about how our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or by attempts to deceive. I need to be careful my words. I need to be very careful I'm not motivating people to act out of anything but a love for the Lord as I try to get people to, to serve, as I try to get people to, 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 to in my communications to, to, to respond in different ways. I'm saying, okay, my ultimate goal here is not for people to think certain things about me or do certain things for me. My ultimate goal is that people would love the Lord. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And then finally, I need to be prayerful. A constant prayer is necessary in my relationships with others to help me discern when I'm being manipulated and to discern if I'm trying to manipulate others even unintentionally. And the people here in Joshua 9 are not prayerful. A controlling outcomes to protect our kingdom does not lead to peace with God. It's not a fruit of a person who's in submission to God it allows us to cling to our kingdom for a little while longer, but it's not 
not true peace with God. Here, here's the second thing I want us to think about. Number two, if your primary goal, if your primary goal in life is to minimize your hardship, you will never maximize your joy. You say, well, how can I know if I'm truly in submission? Another sign that I'm not in true submission to God is this passionate desire to minimize hardship instead of maximize joy through obedience to God. And if my, my whole life is about minimizing hardship, I can be confident I'm not maximizing my joy because I'm not truly in submission to God. Now look at the text again. The deception of the Gibeonites is discovered. Verses 16 through 21, we, we find the deception of the Gibeonites is, is discovered. And the, the people of Israel reach the Gibeonites and the, the, these, these four cities that they come to and the people of Israel can't attack them because leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by Yahweh. And it says, all, verse 18 says, all the congregation murmured against the leaders. And it wasn't because necessarily the congregation was so passionate about obedient to God, being obedient to God. Maybe it was, but it may have also been, hey, we just want the loot that we're going to get through this warfare. But the leaders remain firm. They say, no, we, we can't do this. We've, we've, we've sworn that we would not do this, that we would not attack them. And then in verses 22 through 27, Joshua summons the, the Gibeonites, and, and he says, why did you do this? Why did you deceive us? And the Gibeonites say, well, it was, it was told to us what God had commanded you. And we, we feared greatly for our lives because of you, and we, we did this thing. In other words, we, we did not want to fully sub- submit to, to God. We didn't want Yahweh's will to be, to be lived out through our pain. And so we've done this thing. We've, we've tried to, to preserve our culture while at the same time uh, not facing God's wrath. And now Joshua responds, and his response is, is what causes me especially to view this story negatively. He says, you're cursed, verse 23. You're cursed. And some of you shall never be anything but, but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. Now, again, do you see how this is different than what happened with Rahab? What happens with Rahab? Your God becomes our God. Rahab becomes fully incorporated into the people of God. As you encounter Rahab, you find her several times in the New Testament. You find her in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. You encounter her in the book of Hebrews. You encounter her in the book of James. She's fully incorporated in the people of God. Now, the Gibeonites, the Gibeonites achieve their goal. They're not destroyed. They minimize that, that they minimize the, the hardship that they were going to face through being destroyed or displaced by the people of Israel, but they don't maximize their joy because as you see the Gibeonites occur throughout the rest of Scripture, they're always on the periphery of the people of God, never fully integrated. Now, the covenant still stands. You come into the time of Saul, the time of David, that that covenant that they made with with Israel still stands. God still holds Israel to be faithful to that covenant that he made with the Gibeonites, but but they're never fully integrated into the people of Yahweh. They never encounter 
the fullness of worship as the people of God. For short-term benefit, they lost long-term joy. Are you so desperate to preserve your identity that you'll do so at the cost of being fully included in the joy of belonging to God and his people? Now, I believe that God is still merciful to the Gibeonites. I believe that it's part of his grace that they're, they're, they're allowed to be a part and close proximity to true worship. Unlike other Canaanites, they, they encounter what it looks like to worship Yahweh God, and I believe that God is going to, you know, he saves them as he saves all nations, and yet, and yet there's hardship they face in the, the interim period. Here, here are some principles that I think are, are helpful for us as we think about the submission that God calls us to. Number one, we must remind ourselves that, that curses are often confused with blessings. The things in which I, I delight might be the very things that are keeping me separated from God for eternity. God, God calls me to, to full submission of him, not out of a desire to make my life miserable, but out of a desire to, to bring me fullness of joy. You, you think about your, your role, for those of you who are parents, who have been parents of young children, much of your life as a parent of, of young children is spent convincing your children not to do something that's going to harm them. You know, Don't swallow that. Don't touch that. Don't, don't eat that. Don't, don't fall down those stairs. We're, we're constantly these, these, these parental units just trying to convince our, our children not to do things that are going to cause them great pain. The same is true for God. And we, as we submit ourselves to God and we recognize, okay, my, if my primary goal is to minimize my hardship, I'm never going to maximize my joy. I need to remind myself that, that I'm often going to confuse curses with blessings. I'm going to think those things that are harmful for me are actually blessing and it's going to cost me dearly. Secondly, we must remind ourselves that closeness to God's people is not the same as participation as God's people. We cannot be content with mediocre Christianity. We cannot be content with living near God and his people. We desire to live fully and participate in the, the joy of a full relationship with God, submitting to him as our God and as our Savior. All aspects of our lives, not content with some mere cultural Christianity in which we have warm feelings about God, the Christianity in which we recognize what it means to be a sinner, to have a Savior, and to trust in him fully as Lord. And then finally, we must remind ourselves that the path to joy is a path that's often paved with suffering. And to strive to escape the hard path of suffering is to seek to escape the path of discipleship that God calls us to. Paul in 2 Timothy 3.12 says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And as we seek a path that removes suffering from our lives, we are seeking a path that is not the path to joy. Amy Carmichael, 
wrote these words as she's talking about discipleship and following that after Jesus and talking about the, the wounds that Jesus bore. And she, she says, Hast thou no wound, no wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound, no scar? Is it possible that you have followed Jesus if your feet are not wounded? And the answer, of course, is no. The one who doesn't suffer is not the one who's following in Christ's footsteps. Peace without God, uh, peace with God, cannot happen without full submission. Our war with God doesn't end with, with some sort of ceasefire negotiation in which God gives little and we give a little bit and we get to keep some and God gets to keep some. Our war with God ends with unconditional surrender, recognizing his absolute love for us, his absolute righteousness, and recognizing his absolute authority to, to, in his love to command us to do whatever he would. Let me uh, close with a little bit of a, a lengthy quote from A.W. Tozer. And A.W. Tozer talks about the new cross. So he's kind of talking about, this is from some time ago, but he's, he's kind of talking about cultural Christianity too. And, and cultural Christianity got this, this new cross. So there's the old cross, and then there's this, this new contemporary cross. And he says the, the old cross was you know, it's the gospel message. It called us to die. But this new cross of, of North American Christianity doesn't call us to die. It, it's much nicer. It's, it's what Tozer calls a, this new cross is a, a friendly pal. <laughs> he says the new cross doesn't slay the sinner. It, it redirects him. It gears him into a cleaner and, and jollier way of living. It, it saves, the new cross saves the sinner's self-respect. To the self-assertive, it says, assert yourself for Christ. To the egoist, it says, well, do your boasting in the Lord. To the thrill seeker, it says, come and enjoy the thrill of Christian fellowship. The Christian message becomes slanted in the direction of the person listening to, to make it acceptable to the public. It's sincere but false, Tozer says, and it completely misses the point of the cross. The true cross, the old cross, is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a human being. The man in Roman times who took up his cross and started down the road had already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was going out to have it ended. The cross made no compromise. It modified nothing. It spared nothing. It slew all of the man completely and for good. It did not try to keep on good terms with its victim. The cross struck cruel and hard, and when it had finished its work, the man was no more. God offers us life, Tozer writes, but not an improved old life, the life he offers is life out of death. It stands always on the far side of the cross. Whoever would possess life must pass under the rod. He must repudiate himself and concur in God's just sentence against him. What does this mean to the individual, the condemned man who would find life in Christ Jesus? How can this theology be translated into life? Simply, 
A man, a woman must repent and believe. Let them cover nothing, defend nothing, excuse nothing. Let them not seek to make terms with God, but let them bow their head before the stroke of God's stern displeasure and acknowledge themselves worthy to die. And then having done this, let him gaze with simple trust upon the risen Savior. And from Jesus will come life and rebirth and cleansing and power. The cross that ended the earthly life of Jesus now puts an end to the sinner, and the power that raised Christ from the dead now raises him to a new life along with Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's not seek some negotiated settlement with God that allows us and our kingdom and his kingdom to to try to to coexist together. Let's come to the cross and in fullness submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, acknowledge ourselves worthy to die and receive new life that is possible only in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message of the cross. And Father, our desire this morning is not to deceive you, it's not to deceive ourselves, it's not to deceive others. We stand before you fully exposed in our sin. Not trying to manipulate you into thinking things about us, we stand before you completely exposed and asking for you and your grace to save us, to cause us to to follow the difficult road of discipleship, to not be mediocre Christians content with a cultural Christianity, but to be those who have recognized the infinite value of your Son, Jesus Christ, and committed to a full life of obedience to him, a life that is reflected in our love for each other, a life that is reflected in our laying down ourselves for each other, a life that is reflected in laying down our our lives for those who do not yet know you. We pray that in your grace you would allow us to live a full life in obedience and faith in you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.